Hey, podcast listeners, Dane here. I have an exciting announcement before today's episode of Converge, which is fantastic, by the way. But the news is so exciting that I felt the need to roll out of bed. If you can't tell, I have a head cold. Sorry about that. And add this news exclusively for our faithful listeners. That's you. We'll be doing a big launch later, but I thought you might enjoy seeing things first. And that thing that you'll see is our new home. It's called gobecollective.com, G-O-B-E, collective.com. And uh, don't worry, convergepodcast.com will still work, as will all the other links. But gobecollective.com is going to be our new home for everything. All the projects, all the live events, all the tools and information, basically everything we could think of that would help you and your creativity business grow like it's never grown before. It's a really robust project that we've been working on for so, so long. And we wanted to let you guys know about it first. So I'll let you discover all that's there on your own. And uh, would love it if we could hear what you think of the place and uh, would love your feedback. At the very least, just know that we thought of you first and we're super grateful for all that you mean to our community. And you are the collective. You're part of what this is all about. And uh, we couldn't have done this without you. So thank you. I hope you enjoy it. And I hope you enjoy today's show. This episode of Converge with my guest, Brett Culp, is sponsored by Fastermind Coaching. Fastermind is your personal trainer for you and your business, getting the kind of results you've been looking for at a price any entrepreneur can afford. For more information, check out fastermindcoaching.com. Converge is my chance to connect with creatives who make really interesting things, and when they can, profit from those things, often in ways that might surprise you. My background as a photographer and author gets me in conversations with visual storytellers and writers, but also musicians, actors, business and thought leaders, basically people who work very hard, not just to make a buck, but also to make a point. The invitation is to understand a little more of the context that surrounds their work, and hopefully discover a fresh perspective that might inspire something new around the value you're making in the world. One of the benefits of being a creative, having skills that can make things or that you can make things with is that you can apply those skills in a lot of different ways. And I know for many of you guys who are at home listening, you are one of those people. You have a set of skills. Sometimes you use it for profit. Sometimes you use it maybe not for profit. You donate your skills. But in all cases, you're making something that you hope it will be valuable. And our guest today is someone who does all of the above and a whole lot more. Brett Culp is a filmmaker He got a start in weddings, making really high-end wedding films. But beyond that, he's gone on to do uh, major motion pictures, been featured all over the news, and it landed in a documentary called Legends of the Night. And he's gone on to do a whole lot more than that, too. We'll get a chance to hear from him in just a second. But as you listen, my invitation for you is to really envision not only what Brett has done and be inspired by his journey, but to ask yourself the question, how could his journey maybe catalyze your own and where you could take your skills and maximize them for the world's benefit, not just your own. The place you need to live your life is at the intersection of what you're passionate about and what the world needs. I'm your host, Dane Sanders, and I want to welcome you to Converge. Brett Culp, welcome to Converge. Oh, thanks, Dane, for inviting me. It's a joy to be here with you. Let's just jump right into the conversation about how you got here. I mean, yours is a, a rather, and I guess this is true of you know a lot of folks that that find themselves making really 
broadly known things. But talk a little bit about your journey that led to Legends of the Night and explain a little bit about what Legends of the Night is for the folks at home who haven't had a chance to see it yet. Certainly, certainly. So I was one of those guys that when I was, you know, a kid and in school started making little films of my action figures, you know, with my dad's video camera and did that all through middle school and high school. And when I got in college, I realized that I could film weddings instead of waiting tables. And, you know, I filmed my first wedding for $150 in college and it was so terrible, went so poorly that I said, I'm never going to do that again. It was horrible. But I kind of found myself addicted to it. I love um, the rush of being an event. And I've said to many people that wedding filmmaking and photography is kind of the jazz of that creative business because you kind of know what you're doing, but you're also making it up as you go. And I love that. Um, I love that experience. And I kind of am generally from a filmmaker's perspective and a creative perspective, I love the idea of not being in control and having to adapt. And so for me, uh, documentary filmmaking was really kind of a logical step because that was my goal. So what happened to me was I started uh, filming these very high-end events all over the world, and the event producers that were producing these events were also working with not-for-profits and businesses. And when they started seeing the kind of documentary journalistic style of my work, they, they would say, well, you know, we have a heartfelt thing we need to produce for this company or this organization that we're working with, would you be open to that? And that kind of pulled me into this world of making these short films that had a very documentary approach. And after doing that for several years and kind of developing my own voice, even though I was definitely communicating a client's message, I had my own voice. I really had this feeling like I want to make a feature length film. Uh, I want to do something that that is longer and something that's not just for a client, something that really is an expression of my heart and that's a passion of mine. And so the idea of it was I wanted to create a film that told the stories of uh, the true stories of people who had been inspired to become real life heroes because of their childhood love of Batman. They loved the character Batman, the superhero Batman, when they were kids. They wanted to be a superhero, and when they grew up or at some point in their life, they summoned the courage of this superhero. And at the core of the film, it's really a story about the power that all of us have to be heroes and the power of storytelling and how storytelling affects us and how it can impact us, particularly heroic stories. And so the film is kind of a mix of these stories, but it also has these experts on storytelling and the power of story and mythology talking about how that's really interweaved in our lives and how it affects us. You have gotten a lot of attention with, with this particular piece. I mean, you've been picked up on USA Today, Hollywood Reporter, US Weekly, uh, Entertainment Tonight, Lifetime Network. Like there's like a lot of folks are interested in this and, and not only, not only kind of the established media outlets, but also individual known quantities, celebrities, people who have just gone like, this thing is special. There's something in it that pulls my heart. It's not just clever, but you you broke the veneer for people. You got through to people. What do you what do you attribute? I guess first of all, because you won't do this unless I ask. Like, drop some names here. Like, let us know who are the folks that began to kind of pay attention, uh, and and what do you think it was about the movie that pulled them in that made them made it so compelling? Well, I think the two names that I love talking about that are so funny to talk about because they're so opposite ends of the spectrum is is Kevin Smith loves this film and so does Deepak Chopra. <laughs> and 
you know, it's a there's funny... A, there's an odd couple right there. That's the thing. And I love talking about those two because, you know, we did this like 90-minute podcast with Kevin Smith in his home last year. He invited us to his home to record this podcast with him, my wife and I, and talk about this film for 90 minutes. And he was a huge fan of it. And I mean, essentially just gushed forever. And it was really funny listening to it. A good friend of mine who's an event producer in New York named Michael Cerbelli said after I listened to this interview, you know, because Kevin Smith's dropping the F-bomb like you know, every five seconds and yeah, yeah, yeah. here are my wife and I talking about Jesus and, you know, and, and, you, were, and you weren't cussing. No, 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 not about <laughs> Jesus. And, and no, not at all. And, you know, my friend, Michael Cervelli said that it was kind of like listening to Quentin Tarantino interview his grandmother. And it was a funny sort of experience, but then to have him gush about the film for so long and to love it. And, you know, here's this guy who's an accomplished filmmaker and really in some ways very opposite of me if you write things down in terms of the surface. And then also to have Deepak Chopra tweeting about us because of the more spiritual aspects of the film. And then I think there's everything in between because you got those two guys. But, you know, the biggest win for me is, you know, we screened this movie. It's now up to like a hundred cities theatrically we screened this movie in with proceeds at each screening going to a charity, a local charity in the city of the screening. And I went personally to about 20 of those cities, but the biggest success for me was having these eight year old kids walk up to me afterwards dressed in full Batman costume, you know, having seen really their first Batman movie in a movie theater, um, except for Batman's appearance in the Lego movie. Uh, but this is like their first Batman movie in some ways. Wow. And so I think there's something and it's it's amazing as a creator when you stumble onto something that really has this sort of universal appeal. And when I realized how connectable it was to such a large audience, that's when I kind of realized this was something special that was really beyond me, that it was kind of a gift I had been given. And that really even made me as we made decisions along the way feel like I had to do something really good with it because it was a gift I had been given and it was my obligation for it to be a gift for others. There's, there's a couple of things in that last bit that you were sharing that I want to get to, and I'm going to talk about both and then get to the question. Uh, the first is you referenced your own faith commitment. It sounds like you are a follower of, of Jesus Nazarene. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's one a very particularized kind of faith commitment. And then you talk about folks like Kevin Smith, and then also Deepak Chopra. I don't know them personally, so I can't say, you know, what they would overtly state. But I don't get the impression that they would have a kind of an exclusive commitment to one particular faith. And even a second ago, as you're articulating the broad spectrum of folks, it really just resonated for. And I guess the other piece I want to add to this was you mentioned earlier that one of the reasons why you're drawn into this kind of style of filmmaking was that you like to tell true stories. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk a little bit about, you know, this transcendent experience where it seemed like despite several different takes on what is true, uh, that so many had an appreciation for what you were bringing. What was it? What was the true thread line for folks that it, it somehow transcended their particular tradition that they're part of? About the, about this movie, Legends of the Night? I, I guess so. But I, what I make up actually, Brett, is it's, I don't think it's about Legends of the Night. I get the yeah. impression that that there's something else going, like a bigger picture, that that was one manifestation. But I get the impression, especially when I get look at your body of work, there's something that is an invitation across the board. What is it about the, the work and the way you're approaching your work that is invitational 
for folks beyond just, especially around the category of like what's true for them. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that resonates, do you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's a good story about that. So a couple of years ago, I worked with the United States Navy to make films for the 100th anniversary of naval aviation. And I spent over a year working with the Navy to create these six different films. And in the initial session, I'm sitting in a room with all these admirals and all these notable people, and we're talking about the core of these films. You know, they wanted to talk about props and helos and jets, and they wanted to talk about eras of naval aviation. And And after listening to them talk and knowing that we were going to have to create these different films, and I knew that the tone of them was going to be inspirational and positive, which is why they'd hired me in the first place, I said, I don't want to talk about any of that stuff. I think instead what we should focus on are the things that we all can agree about. So what is it that you think everyone that has ever encountered naval aviation in any form can agree on? And we spent 5, 10, 15, I don't know how long we spent talking about that. And ultimately what we got to was we can all agree that the men and women of naval aviation are the most courageous, bold, innovative people on the planet. And I said, okay, that's what we all agree on, and that's what everyone agrees on. That is our bedrock. That's where everything goes. And I think that story has become important for me because that's part of who I am as a filmmaker. And, you know, usually documentary projects are about things that are wrong with the world. Uh, This is wrong, and we are motivated to make this documentary so that we can fix it. I tend to be a guy that makes films about things that are right with the world and what's working right. And they tend to be feel good type pieces because that's what I'm drawn to. And I think when you're drawn to the things that are right with the world and the things that we all kind of agree on, then you reach a place in the human spirit that's very universal and that's very, as you said, inviting and that brings people into a space where they feel not only very welcome, but they're part of something that's bigger than themselves. Mm. And they leave your film feeling connected to other people in a very wonderful way. You know, as, as I've been a fan of Batman, uh, as many have. And, and recently I came across a, a relatively new radio show on NPR called Invisibilia. Are you familiar with Invisibilia? I'm not, no. Well, it's it's a delightful show. They did six episodes. It's kind of long-form journalism around the invisible things in life. And mm. uh, I recommend it. I think you'd love it. But there was one particular one where uh, someone suggested that you could actually become a Batman. And uh, <laughs> their angle on it was to take that idea. And they actually talked about an individual. I forget, his name is eluding me right now. But he doesn't have any eyes. He literally, mm. uh, when he was four years old, he got cancer of the eyes and they had to be removed. He clicks with his tongue. That's is that right. the story? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. he's the echolocator. But they, yeah. actually, they actually make the case for, like, uh, he can actually see. And at the beginning of the of the uh, episode, they talk about, do you believe that someone without eyes can actually see? And everyone that they survey all say no. Mm-hmm. And, and then near the end, I won't spoil it, but near the end, uh, after they make their case, and it's pretty darn compelling, they say, well, we'll ask you again. If you think now that someone without eyes could actually see, I, wherever you are right now, I want you to dance. And I remember when I was <laughs> when I was hearing this episode, I was running down the boardwalk uh, near my home in Newport Beach, and uh, I'm I looked the fool. I immediately <laughs> broke. I, it was uncontrolled. It, it came out of my chest. I found myself just like, and I am not rhythmically inclined. Uh, this was like a horrific, <laughs> you know, visual. But in my internal subjective experience, it was that kind of a moment that you're describing. This kind of like calling out of myself something that was just bigger than me and and hopeful and 
and the sense of like, I want to be in that kind of space, not to be self-serving or to be a hero or to, and, and that's when I, I kind of get the vibe with what you were trying to accomplish here was a sense of like, you're calling people to be more human, uh, not yeah. to be more super. And, and I'm wondering if that's a, partly a good read uh, from so someone on the outside looking in. Does that sound accurate? You know, and I, I think what you're saying there is, I think the only tweak I would make to it is that by being human, you are super. I think we all have been given the capacity within our humanity to accomplish things that are extra human, what we would consider extra human, that are beyond. And I think there is, and I think, you know, the new film that we're working on now which is really an extension, a natural extension of what Legends of the Night was, really is a movie about hope. And Legends of the Night, again, we screened it in 100 cities all over the world with not a dollar of marketing budget. No advertising, um, no traditional distributor. Uh, it was all grassroots. And I watched people who were strangers to me spend time, energy, their own personal effort, to get people in these screenings and build the screenings up and to create something great for their community and watch these screenings sell out as, you know, people work together to raise money for these charities that they believed in and create an evening of heroic, uh, you know, opportunity and ideas for the young people in their community around this little movie we created. And that has filled me with so much hope and so much belief and so much sense that many of the things we think are beyond, beyond what it is to be human are actually the things that are the most human. You mentioned a minute ago, not a dollar was was spent on marketing. I would add, uh, not a dollar was put in your pocket. It seems, and, <laughs> and I'm, I'm trying to figure out because I again the the folks that are listening to this the show they're folks that make things. I want to make something from those things, and often that's make a living, like feed your kids, put a roof over your head, and so much of what you're describing, Brett, is just, it's super inspiring. Like who doesn't want to do the things you're describing? But but you actually went one step further and decided to take this kind of massive success and leverage it for for even charities that you didn't even necessarily have a stake in like where they were going to go necessarily as i understand it and that's right and that's just a, it's fantastically odd that you did that and so <laughs> so the the question i have is is um partly just personal interest like you know what why but but the other question i have is and this is, I think, where some folks at home are saying, like, yeah, I'd love to do that, too, if I didn't have a mortgage or if I didn't have rent or I didn't have whatever. How tactically did you work something like this out? Because this, this had to take an enormous amount of your energy and focus for, you know, again, an extended amount of time. How do you pay the bills on a model like that? Yeah. So I think what's interesting. Oh, and forgive me, Brett. Let me interrupt. For folks who don't know at home, explain a little bit, too, on, on your model of, of how you actually did these openings and how, how you set things up. Yeah, yeah. So I'll just kind of tell the whole story. So when we finished the film, I got to the end of the process and I'd put every bit of my heart, soul, energy and thought that I could spare beyond my normal clients that pay my bills into the, the making of this film. And what I learned very quickly, and this is something that, you know, if you're in the indie film at all or you're an indie filmmaker and you're listening to this podcast, you're laughing at me as I say this, is that I didn't realize then that I would then spend as much, if not twice as much time getting the film to the world as I did making it. I, I realized that was the, the case. I knew it was. And 
I didn't know what I was going to do next. People would say to me, you know, are you going to put it in film festivals? And I didn't know anything about film festivals. I didn't know how that worked. And they'd say, well, are you going to get distribution? And I'd say, I don't know anything about distribution. I don't have any friends in Hollywood or know anything about that. And then they would kind of look at me and say, well, for all the success you've had and for finishing a movie, you sure don't know what you're doing. And I, I couldn't disagree with them. But I knew this one thing. I knew that the way I wanted to premiere it was I wanted to show it at this historic theater in Tampa, Florida, which is my hometown and where I live. It's a theater that I grew up going to that's like a classic movie palace that seats like 1,500 people. And I knew I wanted to premiere it there, and I knew I wanted the proceeds of that to go to a local charity. And 600 people showed up that night and we raised $1,500 for that charity and they signed up a bunch of volunteers and got some free media exposure out of it and good PR for them. And I woke up the next morning and I said to my wife, you know, I know what I want to do with this movie. I want everyone in the world to have the opportunity to feel this incredibly great energy that I feel right now. I want them to feel what I feel, this good feeling after this premiere. And she said, well, they'd have to make a movie to feel that way, and they're probably not going to do that. And I said, yeah, but what if there was a way that they could? And so what I pursued was the distribution arrangement that would allow people to request screenings of Legends of the Night or a single screening of Legends of the Night in their local movie theater, and then the proceeds would go to a local charity uh, that they chose. And essentially the catch with that is that every single one of these screenings, which we do through a, uh, an organization called TUG, with T-U-G-G, TUG, is that it's kind of like a Kickstarter campaign. And I, I didn't know what exactly was going to happen when we launched that, but what I knew kind of in my gut, and I couldn't have articulated it then as I can now, now that I've seen it, is that I was much less interested in just doing a theatrical release that allowed people to see the movie. I was more interested in seeing if people would step up and be community leaders and essentially be heroes and make these screenings happen. And by the end of it, not only did we inspire people to do these screenings, but what was amazing was it wasn't my effort that made those screenings happen. Even though I did put time and energy into supporting them as I could, it wasn't, they weren't mine. They were other people's screenings. And that was the most rewarding part of the process was see people, you know, get on local TV, local TV news when they were so nervous to promote this screening. And I didn't have the vision to see this at the time, but because of what we did, because we gave it away in that way, we generated so much publicity from the success of all these charity screenings, that that is what ultimately led to the distribution deal that now has Legends of the Night on Netflix and iTunes and Amazon and all of those places. That is the boost that allows me now to go to people and say, look, we've now started this not-for-profit, which what we did was we started, my wife and I started a not-for-profit called the Rising Heroes Project, which is going to be the, the launch pad that we now do our next movie from. And now we can go to people and say, you know, look what we've done. Look at the impact we've made. We've raised over $60,000 for local charities with these efforts. You know, will you help us do it again? 
and the support even so far without even any kind of crowdfunding campaign has been overwhelming to help us with this new film because of the good we did and what we accomplished with the last film. So I think what I would say, and although I can't necessarily say that what we did is a model that works for everyone and for every type of creative thing you're making, I will say that for us, the process of giving it away created so much goodwill and so much attention and so much positive energy and so much support and blessing beyond what would have happened if we'd tried to keep it and monetize it purely for ourselves, that now I have a launching pad for future projects and future ideas that is so much broader than what I would have had if we just tried to selfishly say, well, how can we make this good for us? How can we create something that will that will bless our little family? And instead, we thought bigger and how we could bless the world with it. And that's the way I feel today. I'm so pleased that you not only told that narrative, but also qualified it to say that, you know, not everyone, you know, it, it, this isn't necessarily the way for all people to go do all these things. And it also strikes me that there was a number of uh, facets to this project and to your life that are worth noting. For example, like the movie's really good. Like, like you try to give away a movie that's not or a thing that's not. And again, I'm trying to talk to folks at home here that, you know, just because you're giving it away for free doesn't mean that it's going to be received with the same kind of enthusiasm that you're describing. At least that's the way it occurs to me. But the model itself, the idea of, of really being sensitive to the audience and creating so much disproportionate, like asymmetric value that, that yeah, it, it will kind of ripple back around, especially when it's excellent. Can you just comment very quickly on on that dynamic is, is, is my take true on that? Or do you think this ought to be more of a universal model? No, I think you're exactly right. I think that the trick with anything you're dreaming of the place you need to live your life is at the intersection of what you're passionate about and what the world needs. So there are things you're passionate about, but they, the world doesn't need them. <laughs> and, and it may be great that you're passionate about it, but, but the world doesn't need it. Nobody cares. There are things that the world needs that you're not passionate about. A lot of people pursue those things and they burn out. But if you go to the other side, then you're the starving artist because you're working on what you're passionate about, but nobody needs it. Nobody cares. So I definitely believe that generosity and kindness and seeing what you're passionate about as a gift is the way to go. But it doesn't mean that your model of generosity and kindness and giving is going to be the same as mine and be workable. You mentioned this before, like getting comfortable with this, these, what I make up is I call it tensions, but these tension points. And I know for you, like given that what you've done, you have seen an enormous amount of success and you also are living in the tension of you know, having responsibilities, paying bills, feeding mouths besides your own. In the middle of that, talk a little bit about your willingness to live in the, the tension of like there's certain categories of your life where you can do like this grand project that we've just been spending most of our time talking about. And you're also able to charge through the nose for these luxury events that you also make films from. And for folks at home, this is, again, I think it's tempting to hear these these kind of little thin slices of people's lives and make up a big story of like, oh, I get it. If I just do that, then it'll all work out. And you're someone who is very comfortable, it seems, to dance in a couple different worlds because you understand, at the end of the day, 
we're all kind of freelancers in life and we're piecemealing a lot of things together to make a career. Talk a little bit about living in that tension. Yeah, I mean, have no illusions about the fact that, you know, don't be confused about the fact that before I ever did this project, I spent 15 years of my life busting my hump to build a business that paid my bills. Um, you know, and that I was, when I was building that, had to bring the same passion to that, to the building process, as I brought to Legends of the Night. And I still bring that same level of passion to my clients. And in fact, that's the beauty of getting to work on something like Legends of the Night is that it has expanded my passion for filmmaking and my really my expertise in a way that then translates into my client work, which is wonderful and keeps me from burnout and, and continues to grow me as a professional in a way that's not cynical or just money driven. But but I I spent a long, long time and vested more hours than I even want to tell you building my expertise as a filmmaker, connecting, building relationships, building client relationships and business contacts that then ultimately gave me the flexibility to do what I do. And, you know, the wonderful contacts and friends that I have built in the event industry over the years have been some of my first supporters on this project. Because I have built trust with them over a decade, they know me, they know my heart, and they have seen it over and over again. Additionally, you know, I think, you know, they have also seen me give back in many ways. And so a lot of the support that I've received was really kind of a, you know, Brett has been kind and giving to us in many areas of life. Let us give back to him. Let us help him uh, with this dream that he has and support it. And so... Uh, the, the beauty of my situation, I think there's a lot of people in the world that get to be 60 years old and then they start to give back. The beauty for me was I was able to do it at, you know, 37, but I still put 15 years of blood, sweat and tears into the business that still pays my bills. Does that answer your question? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And my friend, thank you so much for, for taking the time to tease that out and to tease this whole conversation out. Because I know there's folks at home that as they hear this narrative, they they're inspired. And and then sometimes I, I get feedback that they, they, they turn off the, the podcast and then they consider their own lives. And it's this weird dynamic of both being encouraged and, and maybe they look at their own life and they're like, oh, well, that's nice for, that's nice for Brett. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, maybe not for me. And I guess if there's one kind of final word for, for you to that person, the person who's about to hit pause and move on to the, their day and they have dreams, but they just haven't made the leap. What do you, what do you say to that guy? I think I would say that three years ago when I started this journey, I had no idea what it was going to be. I had no idea. I knew what I wanted to accomplish conceptually, but I had no idea how to go about it. And I think the thing that I would say is take the first step. You don't have to see the whole staircase. I did not see the whole staircase. I saw the first step. That was all I could see. And I took it. And then after we built that step, I built the next step. I think ultimately to do anything great, there is a level of faith that is required because fear can find every reason why the idea is stupid and it's not going to work. And I could tell you every reason why this film shouldn't work. I could tell you all the reasons why DC Comics and Warner Brothers were going to sue me and stop me. And yet, here, here I sit, not because of the big vision, but because of the one step at a time approach. And I believe that everyone can take one step and that we all can see one step. And if we have the faith to just keep taking steps, 
uh, with an open, generous heart and a kind spirit and a desire to take the gifts we've been given and use them for the to make the world a better place, we can we can build something really amazing. This was episode 045 of Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. ConvergePodcast.com is our home where you'll find past episodes, as well as Go, the unconference for creatives looking to grow their business. Want to come? Check out ConvergeSummit.com. Music today provided by TripleSkipMusic.com. Sound as good as you look. Thanks to Anna Quaze at AceCreative.co for our audio production. And special thanks to Brett for being with us. Visit him at BrettKulp.com. Finally, if you haven't shared an episode of Converge with a friend, would you? Think of one person right now who you think would benefit from my conversations with Chris Gillibo, Seth Godin, Ann Hanley, Ryan Holiday, and many, many others, and invite them to join in. You caring enough to do that sort of thing is a nod to us that we're doing something right, and like leaving those reviews at iTunes, we see you. Thank you very much. It's a really big deal. So again, thank you. That's it for now. I'm Dane Sanders. I cannot wait until next time.